Would you now turn to the book of Jonah this morning, chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. There was a group of researchers who wanted to make a little test to find out how different people think. The test was comprised of one question. They wanted to take people from different walks of life and see how they would respond to a very simple question. The question is, what does two and two equal? The first person they brought in was an engineer. So they asked him, tell us, what does two plus two equal? He said, well, if you want to know in absolute terms, two plus two equals four. They took notes, thanked him, dismissed him, and brought in their second candidate. This was an architect. They said, Tell us, what does 2 plus 2 equal? And the architect said, well, there are many possibilities. Uh, 2 plus 2 does equal 4, but 3 plus 1 also equals 4. 2.5 plus 1.5 equals 4. 3.5 plus a half equals 4. So you have to choose your options. They took notes. They thanked him, dismissed him. And they brought in their third person, this time an attorney. I think you know where this is going. They said, tell us, what does 2 plus 2 equal? Well, the attorney looked around the room very suspiciously, asked permission if he could close the doors. After closing the doors, sat back at the table and leaned toward the research group and said, well, tell me, what would you like it to be? (laughs) We know that lawyers have been the brunt of jokes for a long time now. There are lists of lawyer jokes. And that's the whole point. They shouldn't be the brunt of a joke. Lawyers should be those who uphold the law. That's what they should stand for, the law, what is true, what is right. And the same with prophets. You would expect a prophet who is the voice of God to listen to the voice of God. We come to a story of a man named Jonah who, rather than heeding the voice of God, ran from God and perhaps After Jonah's episode, there were prophet jokes in Israel, like there are lawyer jokes today. Why are we studying the book of Jonah? You might say, well, because it's a short book, and Lord knows, Skip, you need a short book, (laughs) because we could be in it a long time. It is a short book. There's only 48 verses, 1,328 words altogether. But it's because I've met a lot of people like Jonah. I meet people who run from God, people who are running from a calling of God upon their lives, people who are mad at God, disappointed that God has let them down. And I've met people like Jonah who have failed God, and now they wonder, could God ever use me again? And so we have this book, and it will speak to us. The book of Jonah will speak to anyone who is finding it hard to get along with irregular people. Jonah was an irregular person, and he had people in his life that he would consider irregular. And I bet you may have some irregular people in your life, maybe a a cranky neighbor, 
maybe another neighbor in an apartment close by who loves to play loud music at all hours of the night. Somebody at work who hates you. Irregular people. This book will speak to anyone who is prejudiced against any group of people. This book will speak to those of you who have been wronged and you're still carrying a grudge against people. Yes, this book will speak. I didn't say it'll change you, but it will speak to you. It just depends on how you listen to it, what you do with it. But this book will speak to us on these levels. The the book of Jonah opens in the very first chapter with a very unusual fish story. In fact, that's how lots of people view the book of Jonah, just as another fish tale. And we all know that uh, fish have this incredible capacity of growing every time the story is retold. They go, oh yeah, the book of Jonah, another fish story, man, that was a big one. Have you ever thought about it from Mrs. Jonah's perspective? Can you imagine what she thought or how she looked the day Jonah came home to tell her what had happened to him? Now, we're going to deal more about this whole idea of a great fish swallowing a human being and its possibilities at another time. But I did hear a story, I've always loved it, of a young college girl who was bold in her faith, stood out on a corner and started sharing the gospel one day, had a crowd of people around, and a skeptical professor walked to the edge of the crowd and listened. Listen to this simple faith, this simple trust, this simple gospel. And he, playing the devil's advocate, interrupted her in front of the crowd and said, You believe in the Bible, young lady? Yes, I do, she said. You believe in all of the Bible? I believe in it all. You believe all those stories, all those tales, those miracles? Yeah, it's in the Bible. Do you believe the story of Jonah, swallowed by a great fish? Yes, I do. It's in the Bible. God said it. I believe it. The professor said, Oh, come on. How is it possible that a human being could withstand in such a closed place without the flow of oxygen that condition being surrounded by some gastric acid and the gases emitted by a great fish and then come out alive at the end of it? How is that possible? She said, look, I don't know the answer to all your questions, but tell you what, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. And he said, well, what if Jonah isn't in heaven? She said, well, then you ask him. I've always liked that response, and we'll get more about that fish later on. First of all, let's consider the man with this name, Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, and his dad is even mentioned, the son of Amittai. People not only have a hard time with the story, some have a hard time with Jonah as a historical figure. And in trying to deal with this unusual Old Testament story, Uh, Some have given the explanation that the book of Jonah is a myth. It is in the category of Greek mythology. This is Hebrew mythology. It's a cute little bedtime story Jewish moms and dads could tell to their children to delight them before going to bed. It's a myth. Others have said, no, really, it's an allegory. It is mythical in essence, but it is allegorical in purpose. And just as there was this great fish, it symbolized something in the story. The great fish symbolizes Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and Jonah symbolizes the nation of Israel. And as Babylon would swallow up the Jews, that's what this is all about. Others have said the book of Jonah, there was a guy by the name of Jonah, but he had a dream of this episode. He got aboard a ship, perhaps the figurehead of the ship was a whale, and maybe he had a late night pizza with onions, and he was in that kind of dream state, 
And he dreamt this whole story, and it's a record of his dream. The reason that all of those explanations are not good, plausible explanations is, first of all, the manner in which the book is written is a very straightforward historical narrative. It's written in the same form as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Old Testament history books. Very straightforward. This is what happened. Also, the Jewish historian Josephus refers to the book of Jonah as a historical record, as do other books, historical books from that time period. But really, uh, the way to end the argument is from a New Testament text. The very words of Jesus himself should close any doubts we have. In Matthew chapter 12, when they're looking for a sign, here's what Jesus said. An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He called him a prophet. He called him by name. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, that is the queen of Sheba, will rise in judgment with this generation and condemn it. She came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Now did you notice that in that story that Jesus gives, or that explanation of his resurrection is what it is, that he mentions other historical people. The queen of Sheba, who lived. The men of Nineveh, who lived. Solomon, who was literal and lived. And then he also mentions, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, three days and three nights. It would be unusual to give a story that mixes myth and truth together. And I would say that if the book of Jonah is a lie, then Jesus is a liar. Because he regarded him as a literal prophet. And and listen how the story would, would sound if it were mythological. And Jesus uses that to substantiate his resurrection. It would sound like this in meaning. For as mythological Jonah was three days and three nights in the mythological belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The real men of Nineveh will rise in judgment with this real generation and condemn it because they, the real men of Nineveh, repented at the preaching of mythological Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. That would be a nonsense approach. Jonah is historical. His name is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14 as a prophet of Israel who prophesied under King Jeroboam II, who expanded the eastern borders of Israel. And Jonah, it says, predicted that he would expand the borders of Israel. So by the time of the writing of the book of Jonah, he must have been fairly famous very established as a prophet in the land of Israel. His name is interesting. The name Jonah means dove. Now, when you think of a dove, at least as a symbol, you think of gentleness, compliance. Jesus said, be wise as a serpent and gentle or harmless as a dove. I find that an interesting name for this guy because he was very hard-hearted very bigoted, very harsh in his treatment toward other people, as we'll see in this book, and very narrow-minded. Yet he's given the name Dove. He did not live up to his name. 
There is no other prophet in the Old Testament that was so nationalistic, patriotic toward the Jewish people and who had such a hatred of non-Jews, Gentile people, than Jonah. And yet there is no other prophet in the Old Testament whose ministry is principally to non-Jews as Jonah. God must have a terrific sense of humor. Here's a guy who just loves his own people, strongly Jewish, hates especially the Assyrians, the enemy of Israel. And God sends him to them. And that's his principal mission. That's what he's known for. Which shows us that the very thing that may be our deficit, God may make our asset. The very thing that is the weakness, God may be out to correct and it becomes a strength. I heard of four women in a retirement home. They were playing bridge one morning and in walked an elderly gentleman. They all perked up. One woman said, you're new here, aren't you? He said, yes, ma'am, I am new here. Arrived yesterday morning. Second lady said, "Uh, where'd you live before this? He said, I lived in San Quentin prison. I was there for 20 years. The third one said, what were you in for? He said, I murdered my wife. And the fourth one with a smile perked up and said, oh, you're single then. (laughs) What was the deficit became suddenly an asset. Look at the mission of Jonah as described by God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. There is a phrase we usually skip over when we read the Old Testament, and that is, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. And we, we take that for granted, but underneath... Inside, we wonder, how? How did the word of the Lord come to Jonah? Was it an audible voice? Did the angel of the Lord appear in human form? Was it a vision? Was it a dream? Was it a strong impression? And that's followed up by other wonderings. Does God still speak today? How can I tell the voice of God? How can I tell the difference between God's voice and my mother's tapes playing in my mind? Or the voice of God in a guilty conscience. Or the voice of God in just real bad cooking. How can I know what is an impression from the Spirit of God and something from myself? We struggle with that. You're not the first one to struggle. Everybody I've ever met who follows God has struggled with that question. And one of the most excellent books that sort of deals with this is called Knowing the Face of God by Tim Stafford. And he honestly tells us his struggle. He says, One night I walked for miles asking God again and again to simply show himself to me. Have you ever done that? God, just manifest yourself. He goes on, I shouted to heaven to shatter the silence. I did not want to work up a feeling of God. I wanted God to break in on me. He did not. I heard no voice. I saw no lights in the sky. I went home and I went to bed. And I survived. And I did more than survive. I grew. But I did not stop longing for God to be unquestionably real to me. In the Old Testament, sometimes God did speak very dramatically. He spoke to Moses when he gave him the Ten Commandments. And the children of Israel down below heard great thunderings. They knew God's up to something. 
on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John, a voice comes from heaven. They all heard it. It was audible. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. None of the disciples wondered, is that my mother's tapes playing in my mind? No, that's the voice of God, unmistakable. But then, sometimes God spoke not so dramatically. There was Elijah also on Mount Sinai years later. And he wanted to hear the voice of God in the earthquake and in the fire and in the wind. God didn't use that. But in a very soft, gentle, or still small voice, as one translation puts it, God spoke. Sometimes it's dramatic. Sometimes it's very quiet. Peter, who was one of the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, writes in his letter, I was there. I heard that voice that came from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But he follows it up by saying, but we have something more sure than that. The word of prophecy, the scripture, something more sure than our subjective hearing. We have something that objectively we can look at, and it's the voice of God through prophecy, the scriptures that God has given us. So sometimes, though we're saying, I wish God would speak to me, he never speaks to me. It's because we're expecting, perhaps, a Cecil B. DeMille type of experience. We want the waters parted, the clouds moved, the star to guide us, like the Magi. When, in fact, right now, the Bible is open, the Spirit of God is present, and without shaking any walls, God can transform a life that is a lasting transformation through a still, small voice of the Spirit of God even speaking through the Scriptures. I guess the the real issue is, are we listening? We usually ask, are you speaking? We should ask, am I listening? Am I open? Many people, for example, come into our offices for counseling. What they really want is sanctioning. They want, um, tell me that whatever I decide is okay, pat me on the back and tell me to do it in Jesus' name. God did speak to Jonah, but Jonah had written his diary in advance. He knew where he wanted to go. What was the commission? Arise or get up and go to Nineveh, that great city. Nineveh was a great city, capital of the Assyrian Empire, hub of civilization, a town that was built by Nimrod, the great-grandson of Noah, years before in Genesis 10. And uh, Nineveh was one of the great cities that was against the Jewish people, that actually came in and persecuted Israel, an enemy of the Jews. Now, you would think that when you have a group of people that is the enemy against the Jews and a prophet who's a bigot against non-Jews, and God has a message of judgment for this group of people, that this prophet would say, yeah, uh, that's tailor-made for me. I'd like that job. Notice, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. It was a message of judgment. No grace, no love, no mercy, at least in the message. In fact, turn over to uh, chapter 3 and you will be able to hear the message that he gives when he finally (laughs) makes his way to Nineveh. Verse 4, Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. And he cried out and he said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was his sermon. That's it. No illustration, no lovey-dovey stuff, just you are dead meat. 
God's going to judge you. Forty days, that's your limit. It'll be overthrown. You know, you'd think that Jonah with his attitude, and you'll see his attitude by the end of this book, this bigoted attitude, that he would say, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. I get to get mad at them in the name of God. Good, I'll take it. Uh, he doesn't do that, though. Um, that's the mission, but let's look at what happens. Verse 3 is the mistake that Jonah makes. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down to it, to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Isn't that an odd phrase? Especially for a prophet? Fleeing from the presence of the Lord? Wouldn't any prophet know you can't do that? You cannot run from God. By the time of Jonah, the Psalms had already been written. They were in his scripture. He would have remembered Psalm 139. David said, where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I travel to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, I'm going to run into you. Your hand will guide me. So what does it mean Jonah, a prophet, fled from the presence of the Lord? It means fleeing from the God-given ministry, standing before God as a servant. He's quitting, folks. He's handing in his resignation. He's wanting to be a non-profit organization. (laughs) I don't want to follow you, God. I don't want this job any longer. What is most incredible is how he goes about it. He runs the opposite direction. This is different from other guys who didn't want the prophet job. Moses didn't want the prophet job. Go be my spokesman to Egypt. Moses gave excuse after excuse. I can't talk. They won't listen to me. Pharaoh won't like me. Finally, he goes, okay, I'll go. Jeremiah didn't want the prophet job. He said, I'm not going to speak any more in your name or even mention your name any longer. He was mad at God. But then he said, oh, but the word of God was inside of me like a fire in my bones. I had to speak it. And he did it. Jonah goes the opposite direction, literally. Um, If you had a map and you found out where Jonah was in Joppa, Nineveh is 500 miles due east. He gets on a boat going, he thinks, 2,000 miles due west. Tarshish is in southern Spain past Gibraltar, the uttermost ends of the empire. I had a dog like Jonah once. It was a little Springer Spaniel and just cute but dumb. Well, obstinate, really. I would say, come, and it would go the other direction. And I remember on one occasion, we were in the front yard and a car was going by just 15 miles an hour, very slowly. And the dog was out by the sidewalk, and I said, come, and the dog ran the opposite direction toward the car and ran into the car. The car did not run into the dog. I want you to understand, the dog from behind ran into the car. It was okay, but come on. I should have renamed it Jonah, I think. My question at this point is, Jonah, why? Why, if you are a prophet... If your whole job description is to wait on God's commission, you've been chomping at the bit. You you went to prophet school to do this. You would think that once God says, have I got a job for you, and it's in a foreign field, it's a chance to affect a whole people group, you'd say, yeah, I want that. 
But he says, no, I'm going to go on a little princess cruise to Spain, thank you. Okay, imagine a young aspiring evangelist. He preaches at parks and little venues of 20, 30 people. Suddenly, one day, he gets a call from Billy Graham, personally. And Billy says, I've heard about you. And uh, I'd like you to preach at one of my crusades if you come. Can you imagine this young evangelist saying, um, no, I'm going to be boating this weekend, thank you. I don't think so. I think he'd go, yes, awesome. Jonah goes the opposite direction. Why? A few possibilities. Possibility number one, it was too difficult a job. Okay, imagine walking into Nineveh alone. Nineveh, they said, had walls 100 feet high, 15 gates named after each Assyrian god, 200-foot towers. The walls were thick enough to race chariots three abreast. A large, imposing area. For one prophet dude to walk through that town proclaiming to them a foreign god and saying, you're dead meat, God's going to judge you, would be seemed, it would be laughable, be embarrassing, intimidating. I don't know if you've ever done any open-air preaching where you stand in front of a group of people like at a theater or out downtown and you just raise your voice and get their attention and start preaching the gospel. It can be very intimidating. In fact, 95% of all Christians, it has been said, have never once led another person to Christ. Because of this intimidation, it's hard, it's tough. Now, if this were the case, we could say, okay, I understand, I'm human too. It's tough to do that, Jonah. The text doesn't say that. Possibility number two was too dangerous. Notice the description God gives of the city of Nineveh. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh was known for its brutality. History tells us that one guy by the name of Ashurbanipal, the grandson of Sennacherib, who's mentioned in the scripture, his custom when he would take captives was to rip the lips off of people and rip the hands off of people and let them suffer in that manner. Another great Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser, would flay his captives alive cut off their heads and pile skulls in front of the gates of Nineveh. They were known for brutality. The prophet Nahum describes the brutality in Nahum chapter 3 this way. It's a bloody city full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. There's a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses, and they stumble over the corpses. Well, maybe Jonah didn't want to add his skull to the pile. He wants to get ahead in life. He doesn't want to give his head to the Assyrians. I know this is a very fishy story with lots of puns, but hang with me. If that were the case, we could say, Jonah, I understand. It's sheer terror. You don't want to go into that city and get killed. You want a a life filled with God's blessing. There's a third possibility. In fact, it is the reason. It's because this prophet of God knew that God was good. This prophet of God knew that God was merciful. This prophet of God knew that God was loving and likes to forgive bad people, like the people he hates. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, the Bible here says so. Uh, Turn over to chapter 3. We'll peek ahead. Look at verse 10 on into chapter 4. 
Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Did you get that? He's mad that God didn't judge them. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Isn't that amazing to you? This prophet of God is mad because he knows that God's so loving and gracious and forgiving that he might give the people I hate A second chance. And he's mad at God for it. Now, before we laugh too much at Jonah, let's put it into a modern setting. Let's say it's World War II, and the word of the Lord comes to a Jewish rabbi in Brooklyn, New York, and says, go to Nazi Germany. I have a message that I want you to bring to these people. You may well read, and the rabbi went down to Manhattan and got aboard a ship and went to Hawaii to flee from the presence of the Lord. It's inconceivable to his mind, as inconceivable as it is to Jonah to go to his enemies because God might forgive them. But the point is you have a guy holding on to bitterness more than to forgiveness. Now, there's a few lessons to be learned at this point. Lesson number one, it is sometimes very difficult for us to watch God bless other people other than us. We want God to be good to me. We want God to give me a break. We want God to bless me. Yet the Bible says, weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. It's a whole lot easier to weep with those that weep, isn't it, than rejoice with those that rejoice? It's okay when somebody's really down and out and I'll take their side, I'll be their advocate. Something's happened to you, you're the victim. But when God blesses somebody else... He hadn't blessed me like that. Okay, let's say you need a car really badly, and your friend comes up to you and says, Guess what? God just gave me a brand new car. Your reaction? Praise God. (laughs) That's wonderful. Another lesson. You can run, but you can't hide. Jonah's about to find that out. If I take and go to the uttermost parts of the sea... God is there. He'll find that out. We'll see that next time. But it brings up a question. Are any of us here related to Jonah? Has there been any commission that you feel God is calling you to? Some area of involvement you have postponed? The voice of God through a number of circumstances has been trying to get a hold of your life because he wants to use you, but you have run in a number of directions. Lesson number three. Bitterness blinds people to truth. You're bitter, you're prejudiced, you were entrenched, you won't let go, you can't see the truth. This guy should have known, Psalm 139, where can I flee from your presence? But he goes, I'm going to leave the presence of God. Why? Because he's blinded to a very obvious truth. And remember what John said in 1 John chapter 1, he who says he is in the light but hates his brother is in darkness even until now. Bitterness, hatred, 
The refusal to forgive shackles a person and blinds them to the truth. Now I'm going to take you to a fourth and final point, and that is the misery of Jonah. Um, We already know from being familiar with the story of Jonah that the real misery, the consequences, come in the rest of the story. He goes out to sea, a storm comes up, a great fish swallows him, etc. Until he's uh, crying out, oh God, I'll do what you want me to do. But there are other consequences that are woven into the fabric of just these verses that I want you to notice before we close. Uh, Look at a phrase in verse 3. Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down. That's the phrase I want you to notice. Embed that in your memory. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it. And later on, he goes down into the gullet of the fish. When you read about Jonah, he's going down, down, down. Now, forgive me for spiritualizing this too much. But anytime you go away from God's plan, you go down. From the world's perspective, you may be going up. You're getting away from a tyrannical rule in your life. You're expressing your freedom. You're being liberated. You're becoming upwardly mobile. But if you're running from God, you're going down, not up. There's another phrase that speaks about Jonah's misery. Same verse. He says he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare. Now, can you imagine Jonah? He's down at the dock. He takes out his wallet, and he starts giving out the money needed for the ticket. He pays the fare, and he gets aboard the ship. Does he ever make it to Tarshish? But he paid the full ticket, right? He didn't get his money's worth. He didn't get refunded when they threw him overboard. But he paid full fare for the ticket, but never made it to his destination. There's a point to be made. Whenever you go your own way, you never get to your destination, but you always pay for it, full fare. Whenever you go God's way, you'll always get to his destination, and he'll pay the fare. That's an important principle. Once again, if you go your own way, you'll never get to your destination, and you'll pay full fare. When you go God's way, you will get to his destination and he will pay the fare. Jonah illustrates the first part of that principle. He paid, never made it to Tarshish. Never arrived at the destination. The second part of that principle is illustrated by a woman in the Bible, the mother of Moses. Her name was Jochebed. It was a time of persecution. The Hebrew children were being killed, the males when they were born. And by faith, believing it to be the will of God, She put Moses in a little basket, launched him out into the Nile. There he goes, floating away. God, take care of him. I'm his mother, but I'm letting him go. And the maidens of Pharaoh's daughter pick him up downstream. Pharaoh's daughter had no children. She says, I'll raise him. He'll be my kid. But, you know, I'm a princess. I can't raise him like this. Tell you what, maidens, go out and find some Hebrew woman to raise this little child for me. So they find a Hebrew woman who just happens to be Jochebed, the mother of Moses, the woman who sent the kid downstream. And the Pharaoh's daughter says this in Exodus 2, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will pay you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Listen, that's cool. This mom got paid for being a mom to her own kid by the government, by Pharaoh. Going God's way, God paid the fare. She arrived at the destination. When you go your way, 
you never make it. Now, the consequences are not always readily apparent at first. You, you may go away from the will of God and think, you're getting away with it. Jonah may have thought that. It's about 60-mile walk from the town he comes from, called Gath Heifer, we learned that in 2 Kings 14, down to Joppa. So imagine this guy walking 60 miles on a dusty trail. No angel of God stops him. He's getting away with it. He finds a boat, pays the fare, goes down into it. The boat launches out. No problem. And maybe he's even thinking aboard the ship, hey, I'm getting away with this. God isn't stopping me. Wait, Jonah. In just a little bit, God's going to get your attention. So the consequences of sin may not be so readily apparent, but sin catches up and it'll find us out. But I want to close this message on an upbeat note, bring a little relief to this story. I'm going to cheat just a little bit and peek ahead into the next verse. And I want you to look at uh, two words, three words, but the Lord. Stop right there. That's where we'll end the story, but the Lord. Contrast that with verse three, but Jonah. And now, but the Lord. Here's Jonah, this guy hardened against God. I'm running away from God. But God is too merciful to let this honorary character go. But the Lord is close behind. And that phrase can revolutionize any life that needs mercy, that needs a second chance. There was a politician who went in to get his picture taken. He saw the proofs. He was very angry. He didn't like the way it looked. He stormed back into the studio of the photographer and said, Hey, I don't like these pictures. They don't do me justice. The photographer said, Sir, with all due respect, with a face like yours, you don't need justice. You need mercy. (laughs) Jonah, this prophet, does not need God's justice. He needs God's mercy. And God mercifully will get his attention and mercifully use him for his glory and give him a second chance, showing Jonah that that's the same kind of second chance he wants to give to Nineveh, the people he hates. And it's the same kind of second chance God wants to give to some of you today. You run from God. If you failed God, you're in the periphery wondering, could God ever use me? Could God ever forgive me? But the Lord, let that be a reality in your life. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we are in need of your mercy. We see that even the great prophets, the very one exonerated by Jesus Christ, and used as an illustration of resurrection was one who was ornery, one who was hardened, one who disobeyed. And in some strange way, we take comfort in that, that the people of the Bible were not always perfect, and yet you loved them and used them and were merciful toward them. And Lord, we come before you, and you know who we are. Some of us have run from you. Some of us are in the state of running from you. Many of us are tired, fatigued from the run. And we're in a place right now where we're willing to receive Christ and be accepted by you and get a second chance or or a third or fourth chance. And so, Father, we pray that you might draw people, men and women, to yourself even right now with that same mercy you extended to this prophet. 